Hello, welcome. Thank you for bringing us into your space today. Um, we are so glad you are here. Hey, there are a lot of things that are going on here at Christ Community Church, um, and we would love for you to be a part of them and just be able to get connected. So be sure to check out our website. Also like and subscribe so that you can get new messages um, in your feed. Hello, everyone. So glad you are here. Uh, today, we're entering into a very significant season in our journey through the book of John. The, the teaching and ministry of Jesus that we've seen for the past 17 chapters are now over. Jesus begins his journey to the cross. And what makes this section so moving and so powerful is that it was written by a good friend of Jesus, the Apostle John, who, as we'll see in the narrative, was nearby for much of the trauma of these several hours. He saw Jesus get interrogated. He was standing nearby as Jesus was nailed to the cross. Every detail that John shares in this account is a detail that he wants us to know and to see and to understand understand. So as we begin to walk through these two chapters over the next five weeks, I want us to slow down in these passages and to experience the cross in a deeper way. You know, often as believers in Jesus, we tend to hurry through these passages so that we can quickly get to the good stuff, the resurrection. Uh, but in doing so, I think we miss a crucial aspect of the gospel of what Jesus experienced in his journey to the cross and what that means for us. So, so we as a church are setting aside this five-week period of time to slow down and walk verse by verse through these two chapters, through this amazing account, so that we can experience more deeply the way of the cross. This next five weeks is an opportunity for us to empty ourselves of ourselves and to receive from God a deeper revelation of who Jesus is and what he went through for us, what the cross truly means for us. So as we begin to wade into this journey today, I want to invite you to do a couple of things. One, I want to invite you to spend time alone with God in John 18 and 19 over these next five weeks. So each week, we're going to create a devotional that you can use that week to focus on the passage that we're looking at today. You can look at the devotional this week and let God speak to you from this passage. So you can access that via our app under the journey section on our website. You can use the QR code um, there in front of you. We have print copies available as well in the info area. So I wanna encourage you, let's give room for Jesus to open our eyes and our hearts to the centrality of the cross in our lives. And secondly, I want to invite all of us to consider giving up something for this upcoming month as a way to experience the power of the cross in this season. Sort of like, length, uh, by, like Lent, but we've adapted it to our own journey and our own time frame here as a church. So what if from February 6th, starting Monday, to March 6th, we gave up something in our lives that we enjoy in order to create space in our hearts for Jesus to deepen our walk with him and our experience of the cross life. So pray about it. See if this is something that God is stirring in your heart. I am excited about what God is going to do in us 
over this next in this next five-week season. Okay, so let's dive in. I'm just going to be walking through the passage today, and as I do that, I encourage you to open your heart and your imagination uh, to hearing and seeing the story afresh, as if for the first time. John 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Okay, so as is often the case with John, John loves to use symbolic imagery to add color and depth to the story, and he does so here as well through his use of the word garden. John describes here how Jesus and his disciples enter a garden. John never refers to it as the Garden of Gethsemane. He only calls it a garden, and he does so three times in this passage, which I believe is intentional. It draws our attention to a much larger story that is at play, a story that also began in a garden where God's sinless creation, Adam and Eve, chose to assert their self-will and rebel against their creator, unleashing the devastation of sin on this planet and resulting in Adam and Eve being removed from the garden. But now we have another sinless person, Jesus, whom Paul refers to as the second Adam, choosing to go to a garden. But instead of asserting his self-will, he's going to surrender his will to the will of his father. And in doing so, will completely reverse and reroute the entire trajectory of the human race. All the sin that was unleashed in the first garden is about to be dealt with as a result of what happens in this second garden. Verse 3, so Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Okay, this is quite a group that Judas is leading to Jesus. It includes both Jewish religious leaders and also a detachment of Roman soldiers. Given the large amount of people that are in, you know, in Jerusalem at this time to celebrate Passover, it makes sense that the Roman authorities would be taking precautions to prevent any large uprising of any sort. And so that's why there's also a detachment of Roman soldiers. Verse four, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked, who is it you want? Now, Jesus' reaction to the situation is so fascinating. John lets us know right up front that Jesus is not a victim here. He is not a victim, nor is he a coward hiding for his life. No, he knows exactly what's going to happen to him, and he chooses to move towards it. Jesus, notice John says, Jesus is the one who steps out from the group and asks, who is it you want? This scene contrasts with so many of those scenes in movies, you know, where a prison guard, let's say a prison guard confronts a group of prisoners about someone committing a rule infraction and he says, who did it? And everyone looks at their feet. Uh, you know, that's not what's going on here. Jesus steps out from the group he is with he steps out and he takes the initiative. Who are you looking for? Verse five, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there 
with them. The mention of Judas here by John is intended to reflect the shock of this moment. But so many of us are familiar with the story that it doesn't really hit us. But imagine for a moment, imagine John's vantage point. Just a few hours earlier, Judas was eating the Passover meal with them. Jesus was washing Judas's feet and urging them all to love one another. And now, as Jesus steps forward towards this armed entourage, John sees Judas standing in this crowd of soldiers and Pharisees, one of their very own, one of their band of brothers, had betrayed Jesus this man that John loved and had given his life to follow. John is stunned by this, but Jesus isn't. We saw earlier in John 13 that Jesus knew, he knew what Judas was about to do and had actually told him at the end of the meal, what you're you're gonna do, do quickly. See, this was all a part of God's plan. Everything happening here was all a part of God's plan. Now, another interesting thing to note here is what they call Jesus. They call him Jesus of Nazareth, which was not a compliment. The way Jews in Jerusalem viewed Nazareth was sort of like how people in Boulder think of Greeley, okay? Um, in, In the minds of Jewish leaders, Nazareth was a backwards, redneck, kind of despised sort of place. And so when they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, it is intended as an insult. But Jesus doesn't care. He knows his true identity. So he says to them, I am he. And when he does this, something pretty cool happens. Verse six, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now this is so awesome on multiple levels. What Jesus literally says here is, I am. If you look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint, you will see that these very words are used for the personal name of God, Yahweh, the I am. Jesus asks, who are you looking for? They reply, Jesus of Nazareth, to which Jesus says, I am. And at that moment, the entire group, soldiers, religious leaders, they fall back and they fall over. They are knocked to the ground by the force of his words. People can call Jesus whatever they want, but the reality is he is the I am. There is no doubt who is in charge of all that is happening in this moment. It is not the soldiers with the weapons. It's not Judas nor the religious leaders who are, who are exerting their power. No, the I am is in charge even here, even now. The I am is in charge. He is the one who is orchestrating all of these events for a, for a greater purpose. Verse seven, again, he asked them, who is it you want? The literal translation of this is, whom do you seek? Which you may remember is the exact same phrase Jesus used in John chapter one, when two of John the Baptist's disciples had come to find out more about Jesus. And Jesus, in that moment, he asked them, who are you seeking? 
and they became his followers. Well, here we see the exact same question, but the heart of those seeking is complete. Sorry, Siri, stop, 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 stop. I don't know how to turn this off. If someone can help me sometimes, don't let me know. All right. Here, here we see the same question. And Siri wanted to answer it, obviously. But uh, here we see the same question. But the heart of those who are seeking is completely different. Yeah, they're seeking Jesus. Whom do you seek? We're seeking Jesus. They're seeking Jesus, but not to follow him. They're seeking him to kill him. Verse 7, again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So notice how Jesus gently but firmly asserts his authority in this situation by commanding these leaders and soldiers to not arrest or harm any of the disciples, which is amazing, right? Here is this pretty traumatic moment for Jesus, but he's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his disciples, wanting to make sure they are protected from harm. I mean, what an amazing comfort. What an amazing comfort this can be for us as we see Jesus' heart to protect and keep his own. Not to protect us from hurt and difficulty and hard things. No, no, no. But to protect us from harm. People can hurt our bodies, but they can't harm our soul. They can't come between us and Jesus. Nothing can come between us and Jesus. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Peter, in a moment of rage, you know, excuse not really rage, but more reactive anger, I should say. Peter, in a moment of reactive anger, he just kind of, he draws his sword to try to stop this from happening. And, and thankfully, Peter was not a good swordsman. Uh, his skills were not very good, or the situation could have gone south in a hurry. Um, so it ends up being a fairly minor wound that Jesus immediately heals. John doesn't specifically mention the healing, but Luke does in his version. John just sort of assumes it because John's focus is more on Jesus' rebuke to Peter, who is instinctively trying to stop all this from happening to his friend Jesus. So Jesus says, verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, th this is a fascinating response. Jesus strongly commands Peter to put the sword away. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, you need to let this happen. You need to let this happen. And notice why. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What cup is he referring to? He's alluding to something that God said to the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 25. This is what God said. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. See, the wine of God's wrath in Jeremiah referred to God allowing his people to be overtaken by their enemies because of their rebellion. Now, as we've talked about in other series, and I like to reiterate whenever this comes up, the wrath of God in scripture is not about God 
being continually ticked off and flying off in a, you know, in a, just flying off the handle in rage. You know, that, that's not what God's wrath is as described in scripture. God's wrath is primarily expressed in God lovingly choosing to allow people to experience the consequences of their sin and rebellion so that their hearts might turn to him. God is saying to his people in Jeremiah, if you want to live in rebellion against me, I'm going to let you experience the consequences of that. I'm going to let you drink that cup by allowing these other nations to do what they want to you. That's God's wrath. Okay, if you want that, then I'm going to let that happen. So when Jesus says... The Father has given me this cup to drink. He's referring to the fact that he is going to step in and experience the consequences of our rebellion. He's drinking our cup. He's going to be killed by the Roman and the Jewish authorities. And in doing so, he's going to pave the way for our forgiveness. He will become our substitute. So this is why in Matthew 26, at the Last Supper, we read, then he took the cup, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. See, the cup, the cup represents his blood, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Jesus shed blood will actually establish a new covenant, a new kind of relationship between us and God, a relationship that is based completely on Jesus' work on the cross, not our work. See, he's taking upon himself the full consequences of our sin, what we deserved to experience. And so this is why Jesus said to Peter, put the sword away. You're trying to stop something that's actually a crucial part of God's plan for you and for all of humanity. Verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good for one man to die for the people. Okay, so John is letting us know who, kind of exactly who Jesus is brought to first. He's going to end up Pontius Pilate. We'll see that next week. But initially he goes to the Jewish leaders. I should say he was brought to, he's bound up and brought to the Jewish leaders. First to Annas, who used to be high priest, but continued to wield significant influence and power. That's why they brought him to Annas first. And, and, and then later in the passage, Jesus will be taken to Caiaphas, who's the actual high priest. And John reminds us of something that we saw earlier in John, in John chapter 11. Caiaphas is the one who they were having this debate about Jesus after healing, after um, raising Lazarus from the dead. Everyone was talking about Jesus. And the Sanhedrin met. And so they're having this, this conversation about what to do. And Caiaphas is the one who arrogantly stood up and made this declaration to the other religious leaders about the importance of one man dying for a nation. He was talking about killing Jesus, how they needed to kill Jesus. Jesus so that, the, 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 so that Rome, the Rome wouldn't destroy the nation of Israel. But his words were actually a beautiful prophetic declaration of Jesus' mission. Jesus is choosing to die on behalf 
of the whole nation of Israel. And the high priest is actually prophetically declaring this is going to happen. <laughs> Jumping down to verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I was taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Now, Jesus is not being snarky here. He's not. He, he is calmly but directly pointing out the fact that this interrogation is technically not legal under Jewish law. The Jewish legal system, upon which our legal system is based, was quite sophisticated compared to some other nations who have no rules for interrogation. I guarantee in North Korea, they're not bringing in witnesses, you know. Um, so, so in other, you know, other forms of interrogation, this doesn't happen. But in the Jewish system, for someone to be accused under Jewish law, there needed to be at least two witnesses who testified against them. But here, there are no witnesses. They are questioning Jesus illegally. They're questioning Jesus directly. Him alone, there are no witnesses. They're questioning him directly, which is why Jesus asked, why are you questioning me? Ask some people who heard me. And this is a totally legitimate point Jesus is making. They're not even following their own law. But Jesus' words weren't received well. Verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? You know, I am so amazed of and in awe of how calm Jesus is in this situation. He is not reacting in rage or in anger, even though he had every right to. And look at this, he is not, he's not just passively taking it. He calmly asks a totally legitimate question. What was wrong about what I said? If what I said was wrong, tell me. Testify as to what was wrong. But if what I said was true, why did you strike me? You know, one thing that really stands out in this whole passage, and especially here, is how often Jesus asks questions. Brilliant Simple and yet brilliant questions. They're brilliant because every one of Jesus' questions exposes the heart of a person, but in a very respectful way. So earlier we saw him ask, whom do you seek? Right? Not, you're looking for me? No, it was, whom do you seek? He asked that question so that they have to answer and own what they're doing. Same thing here. His question to this person who struck him exposes the heart of that person and the injustice of that action. But it does so in a very calm, non-angry way. And look, friends, we could learn a lot from Jesus' example. This is what turning the other cheek looks like. It is not weak passivity. It is a calmness that exposes the other person's evil intent. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not reacting in rage and anger. No, he is calmly exposing this person's heart and the injustice of what was happening. But he did it by turning the other cheek. Now, there's one of the very significant things that's happening in the story while Jesus is being questioned, and it has to do with Simon Peter, right? 
We already saw how Simon Peter's initial response was to try and pull out a weapon and stop the arrest from happening, which Jesus immediately rebuked and squelched. But Simon continues to be a part of this story. Um, look at verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is arrested, this question is happening, and Simon Peter and this other um, uh, disciple are following. Now, this other disciple is most likely John, uh, John himself. John never refers to himself throughout this whole book, right? He calls himself the disciple Jesus loved or whatever. He never calls himself by John in the entire book. And it, and it makes total sense for him to be the one seeing all this because then he's able to provide all these intimate details about what was happening. So as Simon Peter and John are following Jesus from a distance, John then eventually gets closer access to what's happening. Verse 15, because this disciple, John, was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Okay, so apparently John has some connection to the high priest. And because of that, he initially is able to get closer access to what was happening to Jesus than Peter was able to get. It's sort of like a backstage pass, okay? That's kind of what's happening here. John has it, Peter doesn't. But Peter, he's left waiting outside the door. Well, then John goes back later, and he uses his relational connections to get Peter access into the high priest's courtyard. But as Peter is being let into this area, the servant girl at the gate recognizes him. Verse 17, you weren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold. And the servants and officials stood around a fire they made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Verse 25, so they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. The rooster crowing is very significant. Just a few hours earlier at dinner, Peter had said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. To which Jesus replied, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And that's exactly what happens. Peter three times denies being with Jesus. He three times denies ever knowing Jesus, being a follower of Jesus. Aren't you one of his disciples? Nope, I'm not. A bit later, aren't you one of his disciples? No, I'm not. Hey, weren't you in the garden with him? Nope. And right then, the rooster crowed. Peter had failed his friend and Messiah. You know, I want us to sit, just to sit in this reality for a moment. Think about this. Jesus knew from this passage here, he knew that Peter, his friend, was going to disown him. Jesus knew that fear was going to grip Peter's heart in such a way that Peter would pretend he never even knew Jesus. Jesus knew Peter was going to completely lie about his relationship with Jesus. And yet, Jesus still chose the path of the cross. He still chose to drink the cup, not only for Peter's sake, but for all of our sakes even in the midst of our struggles and failures. 
you know, maybe you're in a place where fear continues to jerk you around and you feel so unworthy. How could Jesus love someone like me who is so fearful? Or maybe you find yourself in the midst of failure, giving in to a sin you thought was in the rearview mirror of your life. And all you feel now is shame and disappointment in yourself. And you wonder, how could Jesus ever love someone like me? I, I want to just remind you, Jesus chose to go to the cross for you even when he knew you and I would fail. Even when he knew that at times in our lives, fear was going to be a stronger force than faith. And sin was going to be our, our, our preference to obedience. Even then, he still chose the cross. Because he loves you. Just like he loved Peter and Malchus and the high priest and the man who struck him in the face. Jesus went to the cross because he loved all of us. So our stubborn self-will, our pride, our self-centeredness, our failure didn't keep him from embracing the cup, taking upon himself the full consequences of all of our failures and our sins. He paid for all of that so that we don't have to live in shame any longer but instead, we can live in the wonder of his love and forgiveness. I mean, we're going to see that played out in the story of Peter later, right? And how God used even his failure to restore Peter to a new purpose. See, this beginning of Jesus' journey to the cross, we've just looked at. This beginning communicates so powerfully how much Jesus loves you and me. He has a purpose and a destiny for, for you and me that his forgiveness can unlock in a powerful way. But that way is not by tr us trying hard to be better. No, no, it, it is about us letting the cross of Christ be at the center of our identity. Jesus' cross being at the center of our identity. Not our effort, not our performance, our sin. No, it's Jesus' cross being at the center of our identity. Jesus chose the cross. While we were still sinners, Jesus chose the cross because he loves you. Let's pray. So I want us to, as we've been interacting with the passage here, what is Jesus saying to you from this passage? Maybe for some of you, Jesus is just reminding us of how his heart is to protect his own. And even in that moment of trauma, he was standing up for his disciples. And maybe you just need to hear that tonight. You, you need to be reminded that Jesus has not abandoned you. He is with you. He is protecting you. And there's nothing that can separate you from his love. God, we just embrace that truth.
for others of you, maybe Jesus just wants to remind you of how graceful and how calm and courageous he was, even when being slapped out of injustice. And there's something in your heart that just wants to worship him for the way he handled that with such tact and strength. So we worship you, Jesus, for the amazing Savior you are. And for, for all of us here, really, I, I, wanna, I want us to think about this, that Jesus loves us even while we were still sinners. I want you to just think for a moment about any areas of your life in which you have failed Jesus. Failing to follow him or obey him or to walk by faith in him. And perhaps the shame of that sin, it just continues to hang over you like a dark cloud. It, it's attached itself to you like a ball and chain. You just drag it around wherever you go. You feel like a failure. And you just feel distant. That God's turned his face away. Jesus could never love you. Whatever that shame feels like. And I just want to remind you, Jesus died on the cross for that. <laughs> he died on the cross for that sin. He gave his life for that. And so, so the question is, are, are, are you and I, are we willing to let him actually take that sin and all that guilt and all that shame upon himself? So I want to lead you in just a prayer exercise here to experience this. So I want you to imagine in your mind, just close your eyes, just imagine Jesus standing before you. And he's looking at you with eyes of love. And you look down and in your hands, your arms, you're, you're carrying this sin. Whatever it looks like, it's, it's yucky, whatever. It just, but you look down, that's, that's what you see. You're, you're carrying that. And I want you to imagine yourself handing that to Jesus. Just hand that sin, that shame, just hand it to him. And just notice what he does with it as you hand it to him. Look and see what he does with it. Now it's no longer yours, it's his. So now, Jesus, what do you want to give me? You can ask the Lord this in the, in, as you're imagining this. Just ask him, what do you want to give me in exchange? for the sin that I've handed you. Just receive that from him. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for taking our sin and our shame and our guilt 
and we receive from you whatever you want to give. Lord, we receive from you freedom. We receive from you joy. We receive from you a lightness and a grace and a, just a, a purpose. We receive from you forgiveness and the joy of that. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. So we're, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper each week during this five-week season. And so we have tables set up the back and up front here. At any point during worship, you can come to a table. You can take the bread, unleavened, so gluten-free bread, and you can take the juice. You can do it right there. You can go back to your seat. But I, I want to just remind us that Jesus took the cup for us. He took the cup for us. This table is about forgiveness. That's what Jesus offers us, complete forgiveness. So the bread and the juice, they represent all that Jesus poured out for us on the cross. And it's accessible to all of us. This table, look friends, this table is for sinners. It's not for people who have their act together. It is for sinners who have said, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. Forgive me, take my sin and give me life in exchange. That's who this table's for. It's accessible for anyone. So come and eat and drink, right? Come and eat and drink of Jesus' grace. At any point during the worship time, you can stand, sitting, kneeling. At any point during the worship time, you can go back to the prayer stations and receive prayer at any point if God's doing something to you. And at any point, you can go to a table and receive the bread and the juice. Jesus, we love you. We love you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness. So as always, coming out of this message, whatever the Lord is speaking to you and whatever is going on in your life, in your heart, if you need prayer, if you need to talk, we're here for you. So please reach out, send us a comment, send us a message. Uh, if you go to our website, there's a chat box. We're always there and available to talk to you. Uh, and also in this mini series of Jesus' death and the weight of the cross, um, we created this five-week devotional to help us uh, really soak in this message through this month. And you can find that uh, online. You can go or to in the app. link below. Yes, even better. So take advantage of that and really sit in these two chapters of Scripture during this time as we're going to do this as a church. So that's all we had for you uh, today. Have a good rest of your day.